Chapter Six, Part One of Miss Lulu Bet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Miss Lulu Bet by Zona Gale. Chapter Six, Part One, September. The office of Dwight Herbert Deacon, dentist, gold work a speciality, S.I.C., in black lettering, and justice of the peace in gold, was above a store which had been occupied by one unlucky tenant after another, and had suffered long periods of vacancy when ladies' aid societies served lunches there under great white signs badly lettered. Some months of disuse were now broken by the news that the store had been let to a music man. A music man? What on earth was that? Warbleton inquired. The music man arrived, installed three pianos, and filled his window with sheet music, as sung by many ladies who swung in hammocks or kissed their hands on the music covers. While he was still moving in, Dwight Herbert Deacon wandered downstairs and stood informally in the door of the new store. The music man, a pleasant-faced chap of thirty-odd, was rubbing at the face of a piano. "'Hello there,' he said. "'Can I sell you an upright?' "'If I can take it out in pulling your teeth, you can,' Dwight replied. "'Or,' said he, "'I might marry you free, either one.' On this their friendship began. Thenceforth, when business was dull, the idle hours of both men were beguiled with idle gossip. "'How the dickens did you think of pianos for a line?' Dwight asked him once. "'Now my father was a dentist, so I came by it natural. Never entered my head to be anything else. But pianos!' The music man, his name was Neil Cornish, threw up his chin in a boyish fashion, and said he'd be jiggered if he knew. All up and down the Warbleton Main Street, the chances are that the answer would sound the same. "'I'm studying law when I get the chance,' said Cornish, as one who makes a bid to be thought of more highly. "'I see,' said Dwight, respectfully dwelling on the verb. Later on Cornish confided more to Dwight, he was to come by a little inheritance some day. Not much, but something. Yes, it made a man feel a certain confidence. Don't it, said Dwight heartily, as if he knew. Everyone liked Cornish. He told funny stories, and he never compared Warbleton save to its advantage. So at last Dwight said tentatively at lunch, "'What if I brought that Neil Cornish up for supper one of these nights?' "'Oh, Dwighty, do,' said Ina. "'If there's a man in town, let's know it.' "'What if I brought him up to-night?' Up went Ina's eyebrows. "'To-night?' "'Scalloped potatoes and meatloaf and sauce and bread and butter,' Lulu contributed. Cornish came to supper. He was what is known in Warbleton as Dapper.' This Ina saw as she emerged on the veranda in response to Dwight's informal hallo on his way upstairs. She herself was in white muslin, now much too snug, and a blue ribbon. To her greeting their guest replied in that engaging shyness which is not awkwardness. He moved in some pleasant web of gentleness and friendliness. 
They asked him the usual questions, and he replied, rocking all the time with a faint undulating motion of head and shoulders. Warbleton was one of the prettiest little towns that he had ever seen. He liked the people. They seemed different. He was sure to like the place, already liked it. Lulu came to the door in Ninian's thin black-and-white gown. She shook hands with the stranger, not looking at him, and said, "'Come to supper, all.' Monona was already in her place, singing under breath. Mrs. Bett, after hovering in the kitchen door, entered, but they forgot to introduce her. "'Where's Di?' asked Ina. "'I declare that daughter of mine is never anywhere.' A brief silence ensued as they were seated. There being a guest, Grace was to come, and Dwight said unintelligibly, and like lightning, a generic appeal to bless this food, forgive all our sins, and finally save us. And there was something tremendous in this ancient form, whereby all stages of men bow in some now unrecognized recognition of the ceremonial of taking food to nourish life and more. At Amen, Di flashed in, her offices at the mirror fresh upon her, perfect hair, silk dress turned up at the hem. She met Cornish, crimsoned, fluttered to her seat, joggled the table, and, oh dear, she said audibly to her mother, I forgot my ring. The talk was saved alive by a frank effort. Dwight served, making jests about everybody coming back for more. They went on with Warbleton happenings, improvements and openings, and the runaway. Cornish tried hard to make himself agreeable, not ingratiatingly, but good-naturedly. He wished profoundly that before coming he had looked up some more stories in the back of the musical gazettes. Lulu surreptitiously pinched off an ant that was running at large upon the cloth, and thereafter kept her eyes steadfastly on the sugar-bowl, to see if it could be from that. Dwight pretended that those whom he was helping a second time were getting more than their share, and facetiously landed on Di about eating so much that she would grow up and be married first thing she knew. At the word married, Di turned scarlet, laughed heartily, and lifted her glass of water. "'And what instruments do you play?' Ina asked Cornish, in an unrelated effort to lift the talk to musical levels. "'Well, do you know,' said the music man, "'I can't play a thing. Don't know a black note from a white one.' "'You don't? Why, Di plays very prettily,' said Di's mother." "'But then how can you tell what songs to order?' Ina cried. "'Oh, by the music-houses. You go by the sales.' For the first time it occurred to Cornish that this was ridiculous. "'You know I'm really studying law,' he said shyly and proudly. "'Law? How very interesting!' from Ina. "'Oh, but won't he bring up some songs some evening for them to try over, her and I?' At this Di laughed and said that she was out of practice, and lifted her glass of water. In the presence of adults, Di made one weep. She was so slender, so young, so without defences, so intolerably sensitive to every contact, 
so in agony lest she be found wanting. It was amazing how unlike was this die to the die who had ensnared Bobby Larkin. What was one to think? Cornish paid very little attention to her. To Lulu he said kindly, "'Don't you play, Miss?' He had not caught her name. No stranger ever did catch it. But Dwight now supplied it. "'Miss Lulu Bet,' he explained, with loud emphasis, and Lulu burned her slow red. This question Lulu had usually answered by telling how a felon had interrupted her lessons, and she had stopped taking, a participle sacred to music in Warbleton. This vignette had been a kind of epitome of Lulu's biography, but now Lulu was heard to say serenely, "'No, but I'm quite fond of it. I went to a lovely concert two weeks ago.' They all listened. Strange indeed to think of Lulu as having had experiences of which they did not know. "'Yes,' she said, "'it was in Savannah, Georgia.' She flushed and lifted her eyes in a manner of faint defiance. "'Of course,' she said, "'I don't know the names of all the different instruments they played, but there were a good many.' She laughed pleasantly as a part of her sentence. "'They had some lovely tunes,' she said. She knew that the subject was not exhausted, and she hurried on. "'The hall was real large,' she superadded, "'and there were quite a good many people there.' and it was too warm. "'I see,' said Cornish, and said what he had been waiting to say, that he too had been in Savannah, Georgia. Lulu lit with pleasure. "'Well,' she said, and her mind worked, and she caught at the moment before it had escaped. "'Isn't it a pretty city?' she asked, and Cornish assented with the intense heartiness of the provincial." He, too, it seemed, had a conversational appearance to maintain by its own effort. He said that he had enjoyed being in that town, and that he was there for two hours. I was there for a week. Lulu's superiority was really pretty. Have good weather? Cornish selected next. Oh, yes, and they saw all the different buildings, but at her we she flushed and was silenced. She was colouring and breathing quickly. This was the first bit of conversation of this sort of Lulu's life. After supper, Ina inevitably proposed croquet. Dwight pretended to try to escape, and, with his irrepressible mien, talked about Ina, elaborate in his insistence on the third person. She loves it. We have to humour her. You know how it is. Or, no, you don't know, but you will. And more of the same sort, everybody laughing heartily, save Lulu, who looked uncomfortable and wished that Dwight wouldn't, and Mrs. Bett, who paid no attention to anybody that night, not because she had not been introduced, an omission, which she had not even noticed, but merely as another form of tantrum, a self-indulgence. They emerged for croquet. And there on the porch sat Jenny Plough and Bobby, waiting for Di to keep an old engagement, which Di pretended to have forgotten, and to be frightfully annoyed to have to keep. 
She met the objections of her parents with all the batteries of her coquetry, set for both Bobby and Cornish, and, bold in the presence of company, at last went laughing away. And in the minute areas of her consciousness she said to herself that Bobby would be more in love with her than ever, because she had risked all to go with him and that Cornish ought to be distinctly attracted to her because she had not stayed. She was as primitive as pollen. Ina was vexed. She said so, pouting in a fashion which she should have outgrown with white muslin and blue ribbons, and she had outgrown none of these things. "'That just spoils croquet,' she said. "'I'm vexed. Now we can't have a real game.' From the side door, where she must have been lingering among the waterproofs, Lulu stepped forth. "'I'll play a game,' she said. When Cornish actually proposed to bring some music to the deacons, Ina turned toward Dwight Herbert all the facets of her responsibility. And Ina's sense of responsibility toward Di was enormous, oppressive, primitive— amounting, in fact, toward this daughter of Dwight Herbert's late wife, to an ability to compress the offices of stepmotherhood into the functions of the lecture platform. Ina was a fountain of admonition. Her idea of a daughter, step or not, was that of a manufactured product strictly, which you constantly pinched and molded. She thought that a moral preceptor had the right to secrete precepts, Di got them all. But, of course, the crest of Ina's responsibility was to marry Di. This verb should be transitive only when lovers are speaking of each other, or the minister or magistrate is speaking of lovers. It should never be transitive when predicated of parents or any other third party. But it is. Ina was quite agitated by its transitiveness as she took to her husband her incredible responsibility. "'You know, Herbert,' said Ina, "'if this Mr. Cornish comes here very much, what we may expect.' "'What may we expect?' demanded White Herbert crisply. Ina always played his games, answered what he expected her to answer, pretended to be intuitive when she was not so, said, I know, when she didn't know at all. Dwight Herbert, on the other hand, did not even play her games when he knew perfectly what she meant, but pretended not to understand, made her repeat, made her explain. It was as if Ina had to please him for, say, a living. But as for that dentist, he had to please nobody." In the conversations of Dwight and Ina you saw the historical home forming in clots in the fluid wash of the community. "'He'll fall in love with Di,' said Ina. "'And what of that? Little daughter will have many a man fall in love with her, I should say.' "'Yes, but Dwight, what do you think of him?' "'What do I think of him? My dear Ina, I have other things to think of.' "'But we don't know anything about him, Dwight, a stranger so.' "'On the other hand,' said Dwight with dignity, "'I know a good deal about him.' "'With a great air of having done the fatherly "'and found out about this stranger before bringing him into the home, "'Dwight now related a number of stray circumstances "'dropped by Cornish in their chance talks. 
He has a little inheritance coming to him, shortly, Dwight wound up. An inheritance? Really? How much, Dwight? Now isn't that like a woman, isn't it? I thought he was from a good family, said Ina. My mercenary little pussy. Well, she said with a sigh, I shouldn't be surprised if Di did really accept him. A young girl is awfully flattered when a good-looking older man pays her attention. Haven't you noticed that? Dwight informed her, with an air of immense abstraction, that he left all such matters to her. Being married to Dwight was like a perpetual rehearsal, with Dwight's self-importance for audience. A few evenings later Cornish brought up the music. There was something overpowering in this brown-haired chap against the background of his negligible little shop, his whole capital in his few pianos. For he looked hopefully ahead, woke with plans, regarded the children in the street as if conceivably children might come within the confines of his life as he imagined it. A preposterous little man, and a preposterous store, empty, echoing, bare of wall, the three pianos near the front, the remainder of the floor stretching away like the corridors of the lost. He was going to get a dark curtain, he explained, and furnish the back part of the store as his own room. What dignity in phrasing, but how mean that little room would look! Cot bed, washbowl and pitcher, and little mirror, almost certainly a mirror with a wavy surface, almost certainly that. And then, you know, he always added, I'm reading law. The Plows had been asked in that evening. Bobby was there. They were, Dwight Herbert said, going to have a sing. Di was to play. And Di was now embarked on the most difficult feat of her emotional life, the feat of remaining to Bobby Larkin, the lure, the beloved lure, the while to Cornish she instinctively played the role of womanly little girl. "'Up by the festive lamp, everybody!' Dwight Herbert cried. As they gathered about the upright piano, that startled Dwightish instrument, standing in its attitude of unrest, Lulu came in with another lamp. "'Do you need this?' she asked. They did not need it. There was, in fact, no place to set it, and this Lulu must have known. But Dwight found a place. He swept Ninian's photograph from the marble shelf of the mirror, and when Lulu had placed the lamp there, Dwight thrust the photograph into her hands. "'You take care of that,' he said, with a droop of lid discernible only to those who, presumably, loved him. His old attitude toward Lulu had shown a terrible sharpening in these ten days since her return. She stood uncertainly in the thin black-and-white gown which Ninian had bought for her, and held Ninian's photograph and looked helplessly about. She was moving toward the door when Cornish called, "'See here, aren't you going to sing?' "'What?' Dwight used the falsetto. "'Lulu, sing!' Lulu? She stood awkwardly. She had a piteous recrudescence of her old agony at being spoken to in the presence of others. 
but di had opened the album of old favorites which cornish had elected to bring and now she struck the opening chords of bonny eloise lulu stood still looking rather piteously at cornish dwight offered his arm absurdly crooked the ploughs and ina and di began to sing lulu moved forward and stood a little away from them and sang too she was still holding ninian's picture dwight did not sing he lifted his shoulders and his eyebrows and watched lulu when they had finished lulu the mocking baird dwight cried he said baird fine cried cornish why miss lulu you have a good voice miss lulu bet the mocking baird dwight insisted lulu was excited and in some accession of faint power she turned to him now quietly and with a look of appraisal lulu the dove she then surprisingly said to put up with you it was her first bit of conscious repartee to her brother-in-law cornish was bending over di what next do you say he asked she lifted her eyes met his own held them there's such a lovely lovely sacred song here she suggested and looked down you like sacred music she turned to him her pure profile her eyelids fluttering up and said i love it that's it so do i nothing like a sacred piece cornish declared bobby larkin at the end of the piano looked directly into di's face give me ragtime he said now with the effect of bursting out of somewhere don't you like ragtime he put it to her directly di's eyes danced into his they sparkled for him her smile was a smile for him alone all their store of common memories was in their look let's try my rock my refuge cornish suggested that's got up real attractive di's profile again and her pleased voice saying that this was the very one she had been hoping to hear him sing they gathered for my rock my refuge oh cried ina at the conclusion of this number i'm having such a perfectly beautiful time isn't everybody everybody's hostess put it lulu is said dwight and added softly to lulu she don't have to hear herself sing it was incredible he was like a bad boy with a frog about that photograph of ninian he found a dozen ways to torture her called attention to it showed it to cornish set it on the piano facing them all everybody must have understood excepting the ploughs these two gentle souls sang placidly through the album of old favorites and at the melodies smiled happily upon each other with an air from another world always it was as if the ploughs walked some fair interpenetrating plain from which they looked out as do other things not quite of earth say flowers and fire and music strolling home that night the ploughs were overtaken by someone who ran badly and as if she were unaccustomed to running 
"'Miss Plough, Miss Plough,' this one called, and Lulu stood beside them. "'Say,' she said, "'do you know of any job that I could get me? "'I mean that I'd know how to do. "'A job for money? "'I mean a job—' "'She burst into passionate crying. "'They drew her home with them.' End of chapter 6, part 1